now of a series that we started a few weeks ago called Looking at the Cross. And we have been really taking this time during Lent to kind of just settle down and settle into looking at what Jesus has done on the cross. Uh, we used this analogy before that it's like it's the pure light of the love of Christ displayed on the cross, but it's coming in through a prism so that we can start to kind of take it apart and see the different colors, the different things that Jesus has done. And that's what we're trying to reflect on are the different ways that Jesus has saved us. We looked at rescue. We looked at forgiveness. And today we're going to look at the idea of a cost that we were actually bought with a cost, that there was a price to our salvation. Uh, I went a couple of weeks ago to Orlando to go to um, a training event, um, and and I went, spent about four or five days in Orlando. It was great, um, but I flew there, and then I rented a car at the airport, and I got in my car, and it took me about 30 minutes to get from the airport to where I was going. So, like I normally do, I just took out my phone, and I plugged in the address, and I pushed go, and then I just obey whatever my computer tells me to do. So I pushed go and I got on the highway and I went and I didn't realize until I was in it fully and totally committed that I was on a toll road. And I, I don't have any cash in my pocket because I have kids. And I didn't have one of those little toll tags either because I don't live in Orlando. So I'm here in the middle of the toll road going 70 miles an hour. You can't stop. You can't turn around. You can't get off. I've got to pay the price. And I was kind of stuck. That's actually what we're going to look at today, is that there has to be a price paid for our salvation. We talked about kind of that story that we are in, that we immerse ourselves in, that there's something wrong with the world. Well, in order to make things right, there has to be a price. There is a cost associated with that. There is a cost to our salvation. We're actually going to look at three words that describe that cost. So we've not only broken up the cross into all of these different ways of looking at it, but now when we've got that one way, we're breaking it up even more. It's really pretty amazing. We could spend so much time really just investigating what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So three ways that we're going to talk about the cost of our salvation and three words we're going to use. The first word is ransom. The second word is purchase. And then the third word is redemption. And we're going to look at three different scriptures. They're actually listed in your bulletin. Um, so let's look at that first one, the idea of ransom. And the scripture that we're going to look at, <coughs> excuse me, is in Matthew. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 20. In fact, Gene read this verse before, this passage before. So if you'll flip either over to Matthew 20, kind of toward the end of that chapter, or in your bulletin, I'm going to read you Matthew 20, starting at verse 25. But Jesus called them, meaning his disciples, he called to them and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. Now remember the context of this passage is that James and John... Uh, send their mom in to ask Jesus the question of, can we be number one and number two in the kingdom, right? Can we sit to your right and to your left? Thinking, you know, I don't want to ask Jesus, but let's send mom. Maybe it'll go better that way. She can take some cookies with her or something. And Jesus turns, you know, their idea of, of what it means to rule in his kingdom totally on its head. 
And he said, it's not really about being served, but serving. And that's what I've come to do. And I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. The word ransom really means that there is a cost and that cost has set us free. That's really what ransom entails. It's the cost associated with setting you free. I listened to a story the other day um, about a, a young woman who was kidnapped in Somalia. She was living in Somalia. She was she, um, she was working there with a with an aid organization, and one day she was kidnapped by by a gang, kind of of pirates. And they told her straight off the bat. They told her right from the very beginning, "We're kidnapping you because we want money, and we're going to ask for a ransom." Well, the problem was this young woman was Canadian, and I didn't know this until I heard it, but Canada, just like the United States, actually does not pay out ransom to, ki- to kidnappers. They will not, the, the government will not pay out uh, a ransom payment. And furthermore, it's actually illegal in Canada and the United States, it was at the time, uh, for anyone, even a private person, to pay a ransom. So not only will the government not pay it for you, but you can't do it yourself either. So... This girl's, um, this girl's mother, of course, upon hearing of this, you know, gets in touch with the police and the authorities. They all get involved and they start to negotiate. Um, but they're not negotiating a ransom. They're negotiating kind of some different means. The, the negotiators would say to the kidnappers, you know, all right, here's the deal. We'll offer you this. You let her go and we'll give, you know, your government money to build a road, you know, in your neighborhood, in your area. And it'll improve not only your life, but the life of everybody around there. How does that sound? And they said, we want money. In fact, we want $1.5 million. That's what they were asking for. A million and a half dollars. They would try a different tactic. You know, we'll do something actually maybe with a captive that we've got here and we'll have some sort of exchange. They weren't having any of it. Stuck to their guns. million and a half dollars. Well, this went on for months and months. Honestly, it went on for a year. This girl was in captivity for a year and suffered everything probably that you would think of, of being in captivity to someone like that for a year. And at the end of that year, the, the police, the authorities in Canada, really had just kind of come to the end of all of their negotiating powers and it just kind of said, we don't know what else to do. And they said, we're, so we're done leaving the mom really just with the whole job by herself, knowing that her daughter was still enslaved by these kidnappers. Well, on their way out, one of the policemen said, kind of took her aside in private and said, listen, it is illegal to pay a ransom in Canada, but no one has ever prosecuted for it. Wink, wink, right? So the mom and the dad was kind of out of the picture. The mom who, by the way, worked in a bakery for minimum wage. This was a poor family started the negotiating process with the kidnappers and she started talking to him and she started trying to negotiate well listen we are poor we don't have a million and a half dollars just sitting around in a bank account somewhere so can we lower the amount no million and a half dollars can we do something different can you give us time can something else happen and he never budged well finally this woman decided that the only thing she could do was start to raise the money So she actually began kind of a capital campaign. She raised money from thousands of people in Canada and actually across North America. Thousands of people contributed to raise this million and a half dollars. Some people gave like $5. One person gave $200,000. And they finally came up with a million and a half dollars and they sent it to the kidnapper and he released her. And it has a good ending. um, But the fascinating part of that is just how long it actually took them to go through all of the negotiations. Now, why am I telling you this? Because this is the same story, really, that has been accomplished by Jesus. 
that is the situation that we are in bound really in our sin bound the bible says even in our choices the ability our wills even bound to sin not no ability to get out we really were enslaved and there is a ransom a price that needs to be paid to get us out and we don't have that money we don't just have that in our pockets we can't buy our own ransom somebody else actually has to do it now, what is amazing, actually, about the gospel that's so different even than this story, though, is that in this story, thousands of people got together to raise the money to buy out the freedom of one innocent person. But what does Jesus say, actually, to his disciples? He said, I, one person, have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Totally opposite. One innocent person to give his life as a ransom for many. The only one who could actually pay that price, who could pay that cost, has done so. And the cost of our ransom, the cost of our freedom, is the death of the Son of God. It is immense. Our problem is immense. And the cost to get us out of that problem is immense. It's nothing we could ever do on our own. It is the largest ransom that's ever been paid. The cost was the death of the crucifixion, the suffering and the death of the Son of God. That's ransom. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has actually released us from bondage at the cost of his own life. All right, let's move to the second word. The second word is purchase. Now, we may not have all that much experience with ransom, but I guarantee we have a lot of experience with purchase, right? We know this word. The purchase really is a cost that is paid not to free somebody or to buy freedom, but really a cost that is paid to make something my own. When I purchase, you know, a pair of pants or a car or a house, what I'm doing is that I'm actually providing a cost so that it can become mine. And if it's a big item, I'm signing a contract for it. I got my name on it so everybody knows that it's mine. Well, that is what Jesus has done for us as well. He has actually paid the price so that we might become his, so that we might actually belong to God. Okay, flip over to 1 Corinthians, or just look in your bulletin at that second passage that's there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 17. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then listen to this part. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, Paul is talking in the context of sexual sin that's happening in the, in Corinth, in the church there, but really the application is much broader than that too. What he's saying is that because of the price that Jesus has paid, he has purchased us and we belong to him. We are now his. He has bought us for his own. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We don't belong to the old life or world that we used to live in. We don't belong to the bondage and the chains of sin and death. We actually belong to Jesus. Joy will tell you that I have an extremely soft place in my heart for the musical Les Miserables. And notice I did not say the book Les Miserables. I have not read that mammoth book. Neither will I ever read that mammoth book, just so that we're clear. But the musical is amazing. And yes, guys, it's okay to like musicals. That's cool. I have seen it, I think, six times. Um, 
the last time I saw it, I really think I started to tear up before the curtains even went up. I mean, it was really ridiculous, but it just kind of grips me. It just gets me. Uh, the latest movie, you know, with Hugh Jackman is also really fabulous. If you haven't seen it, you should. It's great. The story is amazing and the music is amazing. And my favorite scene in that story, my favorite scene comes kind of early on. And it's the turning point really in the hero's life. The main character, his name is Jean Valjean. And the turning point in his life comes 20 years after he's imprisoned. He spends 20 years, really uh, 20 years of his youth in prison for stealing bread to feed to his young nephew who was hungry. And after 20 years and 20 years of hard labor, really where his identity was stripped from him, where literally his name was taken from him and he was given a number instead. After 20 years, he's released on parole and he's kind of set free. Although he doesn't have family or friends or a job, he's just kind of kicked out onto the street. And so there he is with, with no life and he wanders around a little bit and he finds himself at the front door of the home of this priest, a bishop. And the bishop takes him in and he sees that he's hungry and he sees that he's tired and he brings him and he sits him at his table and he feeds him good food and he gives him drink to drink and he gives him a warm bed to sleep in and he treats him like a man, like a regular person and he shows him love and kindness but remember, Valjean has been conditioned for 20 years of how to think about life. And so in the middle of, of the night, he wakes up and he sees the beautiful silver that's on the table at the priest's house. He sees the, the, the silver goblets and the silver plates and, and the silver place settings. And he, and, he, and he thinks, look how valuable this is. And he takes a bag, he starts to stuff it into the bag, and he takes all of the silver. And then he runs out and flees away in the middle of the night. And the next scene that we see, actually, it's morning, and, and the police have found him. They've caught him, and they come, and they bring him back to the priest's house, and they throw him in front of the priest, and they say, we found this man, and he was stealing all of your silver, and he's got it right here in this bag, and he had the gall to say that you had given it to him. I'm going to read you, actually, the words that the priest then sings to Valjean and to, uh, to the policeman. He says, you forgot these also. Would you leave the best behind? And when he says that, he turns and he takes the two silver candlesticks off of the dining room table. The most valuable things in the room. <clears throat> he takes them and he gives them to him. And he says, you forgot the most valuable things. Would you leave these behind also? And then he says to the policeman, so messieurs, you may release him. For this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. May God's blessing go with you. And then turning back to Valjean, he says, and remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man by the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood. God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. Is that not just a beautiful example of the gospel? He has purchased him at his own cost. And something that was really valuable that was his, he has given it so that he might purchase this man. And it's amazing actually what it does. It is the turning point in his life. Everything changes after that. I would read you his response, but I don't think I could get through it. Because he basically says, what am I to do now? <laughs> I have been overwhelmed with the grace that this man has shown me. And so something has got to change. He realizes that he belongs to someone else. He is a new person, and that now marks his life. 
Friends, the same has happened to us. If we are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. You have been bought at the greatest possible cost. And you are now his. You belong to God. If you've ever wondered, you know, how do I, how do I change? How do I struggle with the things that are hard in my life? How do I rid myself of these patterns of sin? How do I rid myself of the ways that I oftentimes hurt the people that I love the most? How do I change in my life? Well, the very first step is to realize this, is that you have been bought with a price. You belong to God. That's who you are. You have a new life. You are a different person now. There's a really good book called You Can Change. It's a nice descriptive title. And uh, in that book, actually, the uh, the author, a guy named um, Tim Chester, he lays out a few different uh, ways that we can remind ourselves of whose we are. Listen to these. I think they're really good. He says this. We remind ourselves, first of all, that God is great. So I don't have to be in control. I've been purchased by a God who's in total control. I've been purchased and I belong now to a God who is great, who is sovereign, who orders all things since before the dawn of time. That God is totally in control and I'm his. So I don't have to be in control all the time. I don't have to get totally anxious when I'm not in control. I don't have to get angry at the other people around me who kind of strip some of that control around me because you know what? God is in control. God is great. Second thing, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. I belong to a God who is, who is, who is glory beyond glory. And who has actually brought me into his house, who has made me his own, who has called me his child. I belong to that God who has heaped glory on me even. And so, you know what? I don't have to go, I don't have to go about in life fear of what other people think of me. I don't have to go fearing what other people think who I am because I'm actually loved by a God who is glorious. I don't have to go about trying to build my life around what other people think because I belong to God. Or how about this one? God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. Right? I belong to a God who has given me his grace. I belong to him and I don't have to now prove myself to him. I don't have to build some sort of spiritual resume to present before God. Neither do I have to do it to others. Isn't that foolish how we're oftentimes doing that? (laughs) We believe that God has actually declared us righteous. There's nothing that we can do, but somehow we're always kind of building this resume. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. We don't have to do that. How about this last one? God is good, so I don't need to look elsewhere for fulfillment. A God who is truly good, who loves to give his children good things, has made me his own. He has bought me with a price and he loves to delight in his children. He loves to give them good things. He loves to see them flourish. So I don't have to go looking for that somewhere else. I don't have to go looking for my fulfillment or my satisfaction in pleasure. I don't have to go looking for it in consumerism. I don't have to go looking for it in control or in what other people think. I don't have to go looking for those things because they have been given to me. Jesus has purchased you with his blood. He has made you his own. Here's the third word, and this word is redemption. Redemption is a word that we oftentimes kind of throw around as um, really a broad category of salvation, and that's okay. We use that word a lot, but biblically speaking, redemption means something a little narrower. Redemption means actually the price that was paid to make you whole again. The price that was paid to actually make you the person that you were supposed to be. 
Now flip over to Leviticus or look in your bulletin. Leviticus chapter 26. Let me read to you here starting at verse 25. If your brother becomes poor and he sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and he finds sufficient means to redeem it, then let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it to, and then return his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall be released and returned to his property. The, the, the law in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, was that um, someone could not buy your family property and then own it kind of in perpetuity, kind of forever. Is that your property belonged to you. In fact, actually it didn't belong to you. The beginning of this is the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. So God says, the land is mine. I've given it to you to look over it for a little while. But really, for each family, um, they actually had the right to have that land for as long as that family carried on. Which also meant that you couldn't be a slumlord and come in and buy up everybody's property and then extort everyone by kind of leasing it back to them. That was that was not allowed in Israel. And the same thing actually happened for people. Listen to this. This is verse um, 42. Excuse me, 40, uh, 49. 42. Seven, <laughs> if a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and he sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he can redeem himself. The same thing applied for people, right? You couldn't just be sold into slavery forever. Actually, somebody from your nearest relative could come and actually buy you out and make you whole again. This also applied to widows. If you uh, were, were a woman who was married and your husband died and really left you without a means to support yourself... Then what was allowed for, in fact, actually what the responsibility was of the nearest relative of that husband who had died was actually to come in and to marry that woman and to make him to make her his own and to provide for her and to bring her into his house and to carry on his brother's line. If you've read the book of Ruth, this is really what the book of Ruth is about. Ruth is the one who's widowed and Boaz comes and he's her redeemer and he, he makes her his own and he restores to her the benefits of what she had before her husband died. That's what redemption is. And that is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Remember the beginning of that story we told earlier. That God actually made things glorious. That he made human beings to actually bask in his glory. To, to even have partake in his glory. To be made glorious like him in his image. And to glorify God and enjoy him. To be in deep communion with him and with each other. For there to be universal flourishing in the world. And what the Bible tells us is that what Jesus has done in his death is he has paid the price to make us whole again, to bring us back actually to what we were meant to be, to flourish in the way that we were meant to flourish. He has initiated that process that will be completed when he returns. And the Bible says he makes all things new. Francis Schaeffer called mankind a glorious ruin. I love that image, a glorious ruin. 
Doesn't it just make you think of a beautiful building? Think, think about maybe, maybe a beautiful building that you know, turn of the century or Victorian era. And, and it's just stately and gorgeous. Beautiful tall columns and you walk in and the ceilings are high and everything is grand and beautiful. And, and the, the woodwork, you know, is done by an expert craftsman that could never be done anymore because no one has those skills anymore. And the stonework is amazing and the stones are old and they have this incredible weathered look and the, and the wood is old growth wood. You can't even find it anymore and it's just got this beautiful patina to it. And everything is just stately and wonderful. It's glorious. But there's cracks, big cracks in the floor. And, and the termites have started to go to work on that beautiful wood. And, and, and the rats are running around in the kitchen. And there's big holes in the roof, right? And so water's kind of pouring in. And the foundation's not totally level. Well, if somebody came in and they bought that house, first of all, you'd probably think, well, that guy's an idiot, right? Because... Because if you just look at the numbers, it's going to be a lot better to just go ahead and bulldoze that thing and get it out of the way. But instead of bulldozing it, he or she starts to just pour money into it. And, and, and to just expertly start to recraft the wood and the stone and to build it back together. And to painstakingly recreate all of the details and to make it something that's glorious again. And of course, the cost is high. It's exponentially high. It's something that would never make any financial sense. You would never be able to recoup that money. But he's doing it simply to make it beautiful again. That is what the Bible says Jesus has done for us. He has redeemed us. He has come to pay the cost to make us whole again. To make us flourish again. To bring us close to God. And to give us intimacy with him that has been broken by our sin. Friends, that is the love of our Savior displayed on the cross. One who would come and pay an infinite cost to free us from the bondage of sin and death. One who would come and pay an infinite cost to purchase us, to make us his own, so that we might know his love and his care for us. One who has come and paid an infinite cost that he might renew us to how we're supposed to be. That he might actually recreate us to how we were created to be. That is beautiful love displayed for us. Let's pray and thank the God. Thank God for his great mercy on us now. Lord, we thank you for, for redemption, for purchase, for ransom. Lord, it is hard sometimes even to think about the cost that has been laid out because the images that we have don't even do it justice. We think of your suffering. We think of your death, but Lord, that doesn't even do it justice because you, you not only suffered and died, but you took upon yourself the, the weight of sin, the punishment for the sins of the world Lord, the cost is exponential and you have paid it so that we don't have to. That is beautiful grace and love. Thank you, father, for what you've done for us. We pray that we would respond adequately to that appropriately, that we would respond as those whose hearts pour out to you in love in return. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.